Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Knocked Conscious. Today I spoke with Howard Bloom of the Howard Bloom Institute. He wrote two books, The Muhammad Code and The Lucifer Principle, in regards to Palestine and the Islam faith. It was a very interesting conversation. Here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Good to yeah. see you again, sir. It's good to see you. Um, <laughs> first of all, let's start with everything. How do you have any family, friends in Israel? How is everyone? How are you? Um, I have no friends in Israel um, for I wrote about 10 articles on the situation in Israel. Um, some of them were scripts for Coast to Coast. George Nori was kind enough to toss me this topic um, five times or something like that, five weeks in a row. He finally gave up and took me to something else last night. Um, so I'm not the most cheerful subject in the world, suicide, but still. Um, and so for five weeks, I felt I was uh, standing at the ramparts um, because I was trying to tell you the stuff that the American press is not telling you. And the American and that's press, why I brought you on. Yeah, well, sure. the American press has been thoroughly kidnapped um, by militant Islam. And, and it doesn't have a clue as to what militant Islam really is. So when um, people like Rashida Tlaib tell you that the Palestinian cause um, is all about human rights, they are lying through their teeth. Um, there are no human rights. There are 56 nations in the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. There's apparently one more nation that didn't make it in, another Muslim nation. That's 57 nations. Um, in the world that are Muslim nations. Um, the block of Muslim nations is the largest voting block in the UN, so the UN has been thoroughly captured. Um, the effort to capture the American media and American public opinion has been going on for at least 80 years. Um, in the 1980s, uh, not 80 years, sorry, that's at least 40 years. Um, the, the initial attempt by what was then called uh, the Arab League um, to capture American public opinion was clumsy and didn't work. They put out pamphlets saying there was no Holocaust. Uh, World War II was a hoax perpetrated by the Jews. Um, Adolf Hitler was a puppet of the Jews. And all of this the Jews did in order to move into Israel. Um, which, by the way, Israel has been inhabited by Jews continuously for 3,200 years, um, um, sometimes in much smaller numbers than others. Also, Israel is the most savage, the nation the most savage by imperialism and colonialism. First, the, um, the Assyrians came along and pillaged, plundered, and uh, exiled the population. Then the Babylonians came along and did the same thing. Then the Romans came along and did the same thing. And just to humiliate the Jews more, the um, Romans plucked the name of uh, the Israelis' greatest enemies, the Philistines, and named a large territory that included Israel and Syria, um, renamed it Palestine. Um, so... And then in roughly 637 AD um, came the biggest empire at that point in the history of the world, 
um, the Islamic Empire. And the Islamic Empire was very deliberately colonialistic. When they seized the new country, because they were seizing entire empires at that point, um, they would get an entire tribe of Arabs to leave the Arab Peninsula and to go and act as the rulers um, and the aristocrats in the new territory they had taken. In Israel's case, they wiped out 40 cities. Um, and we stuck there. We stayed there. Um, now, there were large diasporas with each of these attacks. Um, but there was always a continuous Jewish presence there. Um, so, and one difficulty is the stuff called the West Bank, that's a bunch of hokum. Um, the West Bank is what was called in the Bible, Judea and Samaria, parts of Israel. So what happened when the British came and the British needed the skills of Ben-Gurion. Um, Ben-Gurion was, and I forget his first name, but Ben-Gurion was a, a chemist. And he had come up with ways of making explosives that were extremely useful and the uh, allies in World War I wanted access uh, to Ben-Gurion's work. So they made a deal with Ben-Gurion. Um, we will um, cut Palestine in half because at that point they had a mandate over Palestine. Um, and we'll give half to you and we'll give half to the Arabs. Well, that, that sounded equitable. And Ben-Gurion said, yes. Then the... Well, if I may, if I may, is this the 5644? No, no, no. This okay, is, I just, this is in I just want to be clear. Okay, this is prior yeah, to that. This is in 1918. This is, this is, okay, this is World War One era. Right, got it. exactly. Just want to be clear so, coming out of that. So... Because um, there, there is an obviously a nuanced history about this. So right. please, please continue. I just, so, once again, I just want to get all the clarification because... Right. There are so many sides to this. I just want to get an understanding of where everyone stands on this, you know, right. more than anything. So um, the British, sometime between World War I and World War II, decided that because of the cooperation of the Arabs um, in World War I to defeat the Turks, who were part of the German alliance, um, they owed this, the, I think it was the Said family, um, I, I'm blanking on the name, but it was one of the major chiefdoms. Um, they owed them a favor. So they took this territory that they had um, promised to give 50% of to the Jews, and they took 75% of it. And they gave it to this royal family. They made it a royal family. Um, they're allies from World War One, And they called it Jordan. Now, calling it Jordan doesn't make it any less Palestinian, if you want to put it that way. Um, 50% of the people of Jordan are so-called Palestinians. I mean, and I say so-called Palestinians because the Palestinian sense of national identity did not exist until 1964. Um, the Palestinians, the so-called Palestinians, had been subjects of the Turkish Empire. Um, totally undifferentiated, with no national identity whatsoever. And the land was very sparsely populated. Um, in the 1800s, 
when Mark Twain um, made a trip to the Holy Land and he um, he wrote a book about it. He portrayed it as extremely sparsely populated. So there were no 700,000 um, so-called Palestinians there. Nonetheless, the next move, whenever it took place, I'm not sure, um, was to then take the 25 the percent that was left, a substantial portion of Jordan had been promised to the Jews, the parts that were formerly Israel in biblical times. You can read all about it in the Bible. Um, the British split that 25 percent in half and gave half to the Arabs and half to the Jews. This is a raw deal, Mark. This is Yeah, Britain is Britain has not been uh history's not been very kind to Britain. Well, I mean, in the case of Jews I, in, in yeah, Israel, we look at World War One too and how certain actions and decisions led to certain other, you know, what do we call escalations. Right. So well, in the case of Israel, I was on a kibbutz one day when I was 20 years old and I lived for a year in Israel, 13 months in Israel. And um, it was a wonderful kibbutz. People were extremely friendly and they took me to an orchard and they said, this is where the British rounded up a hundred of us um, and shot us. Not, not the vision of Great Britain that we have. Um, yeah, it's that imperialism that I'm I'm starting to fight. You know, I'm starting to find myself really torn apart by is the American well, imperialism. When you doing. are facing down imperialisms, don't forget Islam. Islam had the biggest empire in the history of the world. And unlike the British, um, when Islam entered a country like India, it tried to wipe out so many of the Hindus that it could exterminate the Hindu ethnic, ethnocentrism or ethnic sense entirely. Now, it never succeeded in doing that, but when um, Shah Jahan lost his wife, um, Mumtaz, at 38 in childbirth, um, he decided to build a monument to her to express his grief. The monument he built was the Taj Mahal. He was a Muslim um, ruling over a Hindu country. And how could he afford the Taj Mahal? Because for approximately 800 years at that point, um, Islam had been conquering India. And when it did, it raised mountains of Hindu skulls outside the major Muslim cities. And and one ruler swore to kill 100,000 Hindus a year. Um, it was um, Shah Jahan's ability to tax the, the, the Jains, um, the Hindus, the Buddhists, everybody else in that country, and make them totally subservient. Their money was the money that raised the Taj Mahal, the money of Hindus, Sikhs. Um, and Buddhists. Um, so when Islam took a territory, it attempted to the best of its ability to eradicate the previous culture because the previous culture, according to Islam, is Jahaliyyah. 
And Jahalia is the state of hell that exists before Muslim order, following Muslim laws, um, is brought to the land and usually administered, almost always administered by Arabs. So um, the Islam had the biggest, well, Islam's empire was five times the size of the Roman Empire. We think of the Roman Empire as the biggest empire that ever was. No, I'm sorry. The Muslim Empire was five times that size. It was 11 times the conquest of Alexander the Great, and it's three times the size of the United States. And the Arabs, who the last time I looked, and that was a while ago, had 450 million people and had a territory um, several times the size of the United States, um, they, they could have absorbed their refugees from the 1948 war. Most of those were not annihilated by Israeli troops. They were not driven out of the country by Israel. They got a, they got a message on the radio saying, leave Israel, um, park yourself someplace else. We will come in and we will eradicate the Jews within 24 hours. They had a lot of tanks. They had a lot of troops. Sounded totally credible. And then you can follow chapter eight of the Quran the chapter on how to divide up the loot. And you can take whatever women are left as your sex slaves, which is prescribed in chapter eight of the Quran, and take anything else you find laying around. And a lot fell for that deal. And they left voluntarily. Now, when Israel won the war of 1948, the Arab countries expelled 800,000 Jews. And in most cases, stripped them of their property. And those 800,000 Jews were absorbed in Israel. The Arabs, with three times the size of a population or a territory roughly twice the size of the United States, could easily have settled those Palestinian refugees. They chose not to. Why? Why did they choose to keep those people in refugee camps when 400,000 Poles had been forced to leave Poland? and have been taken in by the Germans. And that had happened all over after World War II. People were absorbing their refugees. Um, they chose not to absorb those refugees. They chose to imprison those refugees in refugee camps. So if you've seen the pictures from Gaza, you've seen that those so-called refugee camps, that's a lie. They were not refugee camps. Um, they were modern cities with a lot of high-rise, um, high-rent, luxury apartment buildings. Um, you, you could see those clearly in the pictures that came out early in the war before all the bombing began. Um, so there are a lot of stories that aren't being told here. For example, there are roughly 230,000 refugees in Israel who have had to abandon entire cities because of this war. Um, nobody talks about them. We're only concerned about the refugees in Gaza. There are roughly 350 rockets aimed at civilian centers being rained upon Israel every day. And no one talks about those. Just the bombings that are rockets that are being launched by Israel. Um, 
this is a little bit skewed. And if you turn on CNN, for example, at two o'clock in the morning to catch the news, you will see uh, a Muslim anchor who is talking distant remotely to a a Muslim uh, reporter in the field. The whole thing is being covered by Muslims for Muslims. If you turn to the BBC, because you're disgusted with this, you'll see another Muslim anchor um, interviewing Muslim correspondents. They have captured the headlines. And in 1988, remember, in the 1950s, the, the Muslim states had attempted to foist this view on the world that World War II had been deliberately caused by the Jews so that they could use Hitler as a puppet um, and gain sympathy. Then they became more sophisticated. And in the 1980s, um, Saudi Arabia alone, remember there's a, an Islamic, we hear about uh, a, a Jewish lobby. Um, and sure enough, there is one. And it spends approximately one penny for every American man, woman, and child a year. Now, a penny doesn't sound like much, but there are a lot of Americans. That money adds up. But guess how much the Islam lobby is spending? It is spending $12.38 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. 1,200 times more than the so-called Jewish lobby. Um, And it has been spending that since the 1980s. There are 56 Muslim nations all spending money in Washington's capital to win favor with the government and with the press. And in the 1980s, one of the things that Saudi Arabia did, in addition to building mosques in the United States, was to buy chairs in Middle Eastern studies at universities to endow chairs. So those universities had had people like Bernard Lewis at Princeton in charge of their Middle Eastern studies chairs. Those were, by the 1990s, were gone. They have been replaced by basically Muslim propagandists. Um, And Muslim propagandists with views that you would be shocked were being preached on university campuses, violently anti-Semitic views. Because another thing, because we don't know anything about Islam, I recommend my book, The Muhammad Code, How a Desert Prophet Brought You ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Boko Haram, which took me roughly 30 years to research. Um, That's why I asked you on, because you, you you were one of the people I thought about because you'd written that book. And unfortunately, I hadn't gotten to it yet. I need audio books, but I just haven't, it's just a long, it's a big book. And it's, I'm, it's shocking you know, and entertaining all at once. Ways. So, but it will totally change your view of how other cultures coexist with ours in the world. And um, Muhammad says two things. He says, if there is a Jew in your hands, kill him. Um, and he says, the day of judgment will not come until every stone and tree stands up and says, there is a Jew behind me, kill him. In other words, genocide is an inherent part of Islam. Now, a lot of people in Islam, I hope, um, don't know that and don't take that seriously. 
Um, I'm but, pretty certain there's a large percentage. I mean, it is what 1.6 or 1.8 billion. It's 1.9 billion, according to Muslim now? Okay. at this point. Right. So, and, and so I would. Think, I'm, I'm not defending. Eight, I'm not a defender, but I'm just going to take a stab that mo- many do not aspire to all of it, just like many do not aspire to all the aspects of the Catholic identity, right? Well, um, Ayan Ali Hersey feels that there are basically two Islams. There's the Islam left by Muhammad when he was in his hometown of Mecca. And there he had a live and let live philosophy. And that's where the live and let live um, statements in the Quran come from. And there are three sects that practice different things. Is that correct? Um, well, that was much later. That's long. Right. But I mean, it, 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 aren't, aren't the Shia Sunni yeah, the Shias, and the Shias, the Sunni. Aren't some and of those some live and ones. let live and some of the non-interventionists and some are more. No, I don't or? think so. I think they oh, okay. all. Okay. Because remember, so, you are. So told. please explain. Yeah, please clarify that for me, because, you know, so basically what you're saying was um, there are some people that did have the live and let live much more of a libertarian kind of. Uh, my aspect. friends, I hope in the Muslim community have that attitude, but I can't be certain. I would get, um, almost guarantee that Dave Chappelle does. I would almost um, guarantee that Dave Chappelle right? does. Well, that would be good. Um, He's been a Muslim since 17. So. Right. So that yeah, would surprising. be excellent. Yeah. But um, the, there are lots of Muslims who hide their feelings. So my, my cousin, who is a brilliant woman, she is the founder of the Harlem Village Schools. Um, and at one point, she founded a magazine. And she sent a journalist to Jordan, um, a Jewish journalist, because there's apartheid in the Middle East. It's not in Israel. Israel has lots of, of uh, Arab citizens, Muslim citizens. It's in the Muslim countries where, first of all, there are no human rights, none in any of the Arab countries. And second, um, Jews, well, I told you 800,000 Jews were excluded. Jews are, no, they're not allowed, except on rare occasion, like um, Tony um What's his name? Our, our um, Secretary Lincoln. of State. Lincoln, yeah. right. Um, I, I don't, don't get me started on him. <laughs> right. So at any rate, um, so occasionally they'll let in a Jew um, for high level purposes, and then he's got to be out again very shortly. These are countries that are more accurately described as Judenrein, which is a German word for totally cleansed of Jews, which is even harsher than apartheid. Um, but it is basically a part, uh, the worst version of apartheid you can possibly imagine. There are no human rights in the Muslim world. And in Cairo, about 2005, I think it was, um, Cairo is considered the intellectual capital of the Muslim world. So what comes out of Cairo has a special stance, like what comes out of Harvard in the United States. And they issued a paper, these gathered scholars, issued a paper on human rights in Islam. And the first five pages make it sound like, of course, Islam has human rights. And they bank on the fact that you won't get to page six. You'll find this such dry reading. Well, if you get to page six, it says there are no such thing as human rights in Islam. There are only human duties. There are only human obligation. Remember, um, Often the Islamic empire has referred to its citizens as slaves of Islam, slaves of Allah. Um, 
So there is genocide going on, was going on on October 8th. The only thing that holds the Palestinian movement together, remember, they were gathered artificially in order to wipe Israel off the map, in order to weaken Israel. And the only thing that unites the Palestinian people is genocide, is the concept of killing the Jews, driving them into the sea, driving them out of Israel from uh, the river to the sea, which is the popular phrase you've heard at American protests recently. And uh, Rashida Tlaib uses it. Um, and then killing the Jews in the rest of the world, because that's a mandate left by Mohammed. And to be a good Muslim, to be righteous and just and pure, you have to follow every step in Muhammad's footsteps. And once Muhammad moved from Mecca to Medina, which was a Jewish city, and he went there because that was the only the only people who would accept him um, when he was in trouble. Um, we thought they were trying to kill him in Mecca were Jews. And then he turned violently anti-Semitic. He turned against the people who helped save him. Um, and so the only thing that holds the um, Hamas together is this goal of annihilation, of extermination, of genocide. The only thing that holds Iran or one of the things that holds Iran together, the sponsor of both Hamas and Hezbollah, is destroying Israel. They painted on their rockets the destruction of Israel. And Hezbollah, which was founded by the Ayatollah Khomeini in 1982, in other words, founded by an Iranian in Lebanon, and now controls Lebanon's politics, um, Hezbollah, with its claimed, it, it claims to have something like 500,000 or maybe it's 200,000 rockets. Um, it's often said that in the West that they have 50,000. Who knows? The figure is in between there somewhere. But Hezbollah's only aim is genocide. Its only aim is the extermination of the Jews. And people like Rashid Talib, Bucker Ass, and even uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, are supporting this idea that, oh, they're just in for human rights. They're just in for national liberation. No, sorry, that's a lie. And anybody who says it should be seriously censured. So, so that's, let me. Yeah, go ahead. So we know where the United States is. Clearly, right. we moved carriers into the into the air region. We clearly know the United States sounds on Ukraine. So where's the dissonance in America in this? And I'm not I'm I'm kind I'm on a different fence than everyone than many. So right. but my curiosity is how are how did pro Ukraine become anti Israel in the mainstream court? What I call the corporate media. How, how would you explain this again? It's uh, look, I I followed this. I found the tracks of this business of buying university chairs when I was doing my fact checking um, for the Lucifer principle in the 1990s, early 1990s. And um, I used to do a lot of Saudi television and I used to do a lot of Iranian television, as ironic as that sounds. And well, I would think um, not. That's I mean, how much more do you understand it when you when you're kind of rubbing elbows with it? Right. I mean, right. 
And so I, I avoided doing Iranian television because it's owned by the Iranian government, which is committed to my extermination. Um, so I have a personal stake in this. And then Walt, I think his name is Walter Mearsheimer, brought out a book on the Israel lobby. And that he just book, was on. He was just on something on Twitter today. And I forget on X. I forget what right. it's about. But he, he just and somebody else headlines. told me he was someplace else with two or three days ago. So he's yeah. Mearsheimer is making the rounds right now. He is. Yeah. And and he is thoroughly anti-Semitic. Fuck his soul. But at any rate. So I'm sorry that use word is in use a lot in the last. I, I have zero issue. This is about expression. It's right. It's, I am all for it because it's about letting people who I don't like saying things I don't like. It really right. is, it has nothing to do with if I can allow that, then we can at least at least we know where we stand so we can figure this out. Right. Right. So. Um, these two guys, Mearsheimer and Walt, brought out this book. I was absolutely furious about it. It was getting a ton of press. Um, and so I started to research the Islam lobby. So I called two of my three of my friends who were in high places in uh, the, the anti-terrorism movement, figuring they would know this. I asked them, how much does the Islam lobby spend a year? And they said, Islam lobby, what are you talking about? It had never occurred to them before that these 57 countries were working together, especially when right. it came to Israel, because they all share a common belief there. Um that Israel should be eradicated, basically. Um, so I had to research it myself. And the only figure I was able to find was on just one country, Saudi Arabia. And the figure was $4 billion a year. Now, I haven't done the translation, but $4 billion a year back around 1992 um, would be closer to $40 billion or $20 billion today. It's a, a big chunk, yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't include the budgets of the other 56 Muslim nations. And so, outside of ideology, right. I'm very familiar with the Saudi regime. So uh -huh. regardless, regardless of the ideology behind it. Right. So at any rate, um, when I got a call from Iranian TV asking me to come on to talk about the Israel lobby, I had this information in hand, which I had researched, and it was all bottled up inside of me. I had nobody to express it to. And if the only place I was going to be able to express it was Iranian television, then so be it. Why not, and, right? Right. And from that point the on, truth, they had... The truth of the price of anything, right? The, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. So um, they were very sweet to me. Um they made me uh, a regular guest, um, regular unscheduled guest. Then the Saudis, because the Saudis and the Iranians who were make, who were at war with each other in the Middle East, real serious, heavy duty, killing lots of people war. Um, they shared an office in the United States, the two TV networks. So once the Saudi TV people saw me going in to do Iranian television, they would grab me and say, do you have an extra 10 minutes? Can you do an interview with us? And I thus became a regular on Saudi TV as you well. Do it. So wow. it is. And then the sheik who made Dubai what it is today named a racehorse after one of my books. <laughs> um, 
and which one? then which book? Come on, uh, the genius us. of the beast. So the racehorse is called the beast. The beast, um, perfect. And then um, Kuala Lumpur, which is the capital of a Muslim, one of the biggest Muslim nations in the world, Malaysia, asked me to come and do a um, a, a two day set on a training for general managers and and CEOs on reperceiving leadership. So what had happened was that back in the 1990s, when the Lucifer Principle had come out, it was immately attacked by CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations. Immediately. That's the one. Yeah. And they went to my publishers and demanded, this is in Salman Rushdie days, when people were being killed for publishing Salman Rushdie's book. And they went to my publishers and merely having a bunch of care people show up in your office sent you trembling down to your socks. Um, and they demanded that my book be taken out of print and that the my publisher make sure that I never get a book in print again. That book was the Lucifer Principle. Um, and then the um, these organizations are all very carefully coordinated. So there was the Muslim Student Association back then. And the Muslim Student Association called for my punishment in 17 countries. And then my TV rep, what I had wanted to do ever since the 1970s was have my TV series like James Burke's Connections. Um, And my TV rep had gotten me meetings in Washington, D.C. with, among other people, the man who had been named the new head of the Science Channel two hours before we walked into his office. And he heard what I had to say and pointed at me um, and said, 13 part fast start. Most wonderful words you could hear if you were after your own TV series. Beautiful. So because he wanted to get this up and running so fast, this was on a Tuesday. He got his check. They have to check you out. Check out your background. So he got his check them out team um, working on me on Wednesday. And by Saturday, the whole series idea had been killed. Why? Because they had discovered that I was controversial in the Muslim world. Um, Then, because all these events happened that I they were concerned about an audience issue that it took like two billion people out of the out of the uh, viewership. I guess these people, uh, people like Care, can make you look really bad. Well, look at X right now. Look at look at the advertising attack on X. I mean, it is getting pretty brutal. Um, it's nasty. Uh, and that's why Elon used that magic word. Fuck. Um, twice. Um, Like I said, it's been going around a little bit, hasn't it? Right. So at any rate, but because I'd been accepted by the sheikh who runs Dubai, because, um, I had been accepted in Kuala Lumpur because I had become a regular on Saudi and Iranian television when the Muhammad code came out which shows you aspects of Islam that are totally hidden from Westerners, that nobody in the West knows. Even people like Bernard Lewis, one of the greatest scholars on Islam of the past 50 years, um, do not seem to know this stuff because they don't go to the original Muslim sources, which is where I drowned myself um, for several years. So you did Um, the legwork. You said 30 years in the making? It was 30 years in the making, right. 
from the time I found that pamphlet from the United Arab League when I was 20 years old, which would have been 1963, um, until I finished the book and to the first version of the book in 2005, then the, the published version of the book in 2015. So I can't oh. do the arithmetic on that. That's six. Nah, we're not. We're good. We're well past. It. Yeah. <laughs> we so, don't need to do that. That's at, a long at any, time. At any rate, it took all that time, Mark, because the real turning point and real research does. I mean, it really does take that time to get the nuance that you need, and for your brain to process it. I mean, the thing that turned me around was I collected everything that Osama bin Laden had ever written or ever spoken, but had been written down. And I intended to put it out as a book. Um, I had started covering Osama bin Laden in 1999, two years before 9-11. And then I realized I couldn't put this out as a book. It's utter gibberish to Westerners. And I couldn't understand the gibberish myself. He was clearly using rigorous references to historical figures and historical places. But he was using Muslim place names and the names of people who were important in Muslim history, which we are not taught. We are not taught the history of the greatest empire in the history of the world. Does that seem we're not outrageous? taught that much in general? Let's let's not go that let's not even go that far, Howard. We're not right. being taught that much in general. Well, it would be <laughs> we're nice. not even taught American history in sex. Right. I mean, that, it would be that, a I great thing true. to understand how this how this actual civics part works so we can work the system the way we need to to make it work for us right well that i mean we need to um become aware of history once again you can't understand for the sure. present without understanding the past and you can't aim toward the future without understanding the past so at any rate i re so i tried to find the key to all these place names that i'd never heard of before and all these people's names that i'd never heard of before and I finally found it in the Quran, in the Hadith, which are the collected sayings of Muhammad. Those are two of the holy books of Islam. And in the original biographies, the two original biographies written of Muhammad and the rise of the Muslim people, written by Muslims um, 150 years after Muhammad had died. And from those books, I could put together the story and I tell you the story because Muhammad, once he moved to Mecca, to, I mean, to Medina, the Jewish town where he became rapidly anti-Semitic, um, he became a warrior. And he um, com commanded 65 military expeditions and he personally led 27 of them. And um, he conquered 13.5 miles every single day for 10 years. And he said, um, take, thou shalt take no hostages until thou hast made great slaughter in the land. And another translation of that is thou shalt take no hostages until thou hast uh, totally subdued the land. And what he seems to have meant was kill so many people that you strike terror into the hearts of those who remain, and they will come crawling to you and kiss your ankles, begging, telling you they will do absolutely anything, but please just spare their lives, because that's when you can turn them 
into Muslims. And that is the goal. Every territory you take must become utterly Muslim. The ruling religion, for example, within um, 20 years of Muslim uh, of Muhammad's death, his followers had taken the entire Persian Empire. Can you imagine that? Um, these desert That's people. That's a big one. Yeah, a very big one. And um, they so thoroughly eradicated the indigenous religion of the Persian Empire, um, the Ahura Mazda um, cult, Zoroastrianism, that the few Zoroastrians who were left alive got on ships and went to India. And today they're called Parsis in India for Persians. Um, and they still believe in their Zoroastrianism. But the Persian Empire became totally, completely, 100% Muslim. Um, and so that's what Islam intends to do with any nation it can take, is wipe out the indigenous religion. It didn't succeed with that in Israel. Jews remain Jews. The holy city of Tzfat remained Jewish um, and remained very religious. Um, and they didn't wipe out whatever it is about Jewish culture that makes it unique, why it produces Albert Einstein and people like that. Or why the hell it produces people like me who are perpetual outsiders and who have the advantage. Ashkenazi, right? I would guess. Yeah, I mean, it seems to right. be the Ashkenazi lineage that I find very anti-fragile. Right. So, yeah, mm -hmm. my grandparents on one side were from Belarus, um, which was called White Russia. It was also called the Pale because Jews were only allowed to live in Belarus. They couldn't live in the main body of Russia. And um, and Latvia, which was a Germanic, uh, at least the city of Riga, where my family was from, had a Germanic culture because it had been part of the Hanseatic League. So those are the but who knows where they came from before that? Right. Because, you know, the wandering Jew is a true phrase because Jews were thrown out of every country you can possibly imagine in Europe. Uh, and the so seem to be seem to be low hanging fruit as a people's to find as a target of some sort. Well, scapegoats cultures. come in very useful in forming the bonds of social organization. And um, it becomes particularly convenient when there is one people and one people alone who it is traditional to scapegoat all over the world. This goes back to a uh, an experiment I was checking up on one day from the 1940s on the frustration-aggression hypothesis. And um, in the middle of the article was something that wasn't in the abstract and wasn't in the conclusion. And it was the most important thing to my mind in the article. At one point, these experimenters, um, who, who the lead experimenter I think was Jewish, but at any rate, they took seven rats and they took two different approaches. They either put them on a hot plate or they put them on an electrified grid. Now, when seven rats' feet are being sizzled, you would think that they would huddle together because rats are a very huggy, loving bunch. Yeah, social. there's a social aspect to them, for sure. Right. So you would think that they would huddle together to give each other comfort in the face of this storm of pain. But that's not what they do. The six strongest rats immediately feel out who they are, and who the weakest rat is. And they beat 
the living bejesus out of the weakest rat. That is the instinctual underpinning inside of you and me for scapegoating. And scapegoating, look how Hitler, how useful Hitler found it. Look how useful. Well, we, yeah, we'll hear the story of like somebody has like a pet chimp. And yeah. for eight years, it's totally fine. And one little outburst and somebody's face is bitten off. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's just because that is an instinct. It It is right. definitely an instinct that, that needs but to this be. Is, that this is an instinct. Scapegoating is an instinct of social construction. For you, sure. Um, you know, the bloom. That's the whole point this. of the scapegoat. I mean, the whole point of how it, how it came to be, right? You had the goat right. that you sacrificed and whatnot. So, so scapegoating bonds you together. And um, it's been used as a tool all over the world. And the bloomism for this is politics is permission to hate. When Donald yeah. Trump came down the golden staircase um, at the Trump Tower to announce his run for the presidency. He said um, that immigrants from Mexico are murderers and rapists. Well, he gave permission to hate immediately. He gave you a target that would allow you to recognize others of your kind by your shared hatred of this little group that was too weak to ever fight back. And it worked brilliantly for him. Why? Because when you when you do what's called altruistic punishment in psychology, that is when there's a socially targeted group that is targeted allegedly for its transgressions. Um, in the case of Mexicans, it's rapists and and murderers. Um, well, let's let's you, take it a step further. Then the newest is the fentanyl crisis, right? The amount of fentanyl coming right. across so, is the newest that, uh, blame or whatever. <laughs> you know, like I said, that's the newest, at least, narrative of it. Right. So when you give people permission to hate, you raise the dopamine levels in their brain. And dopamine is the internal biological equivalent of cocaine. So Donald Trump could just as easily have been coming down that escalator with trays of cocaine. Um, it's, it's a brilliant bonder. We are built like the rats on a hot plate to seek out the weakest among us and beat the crap out of them. Well, let's not get ourselves. Donald Trump is a smart politician type strategic person. He knows what buttons to push. He did that intentionally. That's at, well, there's a story about Donald Trump that I don't think I've told you in the past, but stop me if I have. Well, um, no, please. Please share I, it. We'd love to hear I it. I had a friend, I still do, who was... <laughs> I had a friends, friend once. Right. Who was close friends with Ivana Trump, Donald Trump's first wife. Yes. And she told she him... Passed, she passed in the past few years. Yeah, right? about three, two years ago or yeah. three years ago. And um, Ivana told my friend, um, you have to understand something about Donald. People think he doesn't read. That's not true. He keeps two books by his bedside. And he reads a portion of one of them every night before he goes to sleep. Now, those two books were Mein Kampf, Hitler's how-to book on how to make a Nazi nation, um, mm -hmm. and a book called something like How We Will Conquer the World. It's a collection of Hitler's speeches. So Donald Trump knows these tricks. And 
in the days of the founding fathers, it was said that no um, person of low cunning who's good at publicizing himself will ever get to the White House, will ever become president, because he may rise in his state. But once he gets to the national level, the national level will be written, will be run by people of wisdom and they will see through him and he will not make it to the presidency. Well, that phrase is important, low cunning. That is what Donald Trump has in place of what you or I would call intelligence. And it is a ferociously powerful skill. Well, he uh, is also witty, though. I mean, it, it is beyond like he could he could be a comedian. He has a wit. Right. There's a sharpness to him. I'm not once again, it's not to defend who he is. I'm just saying what I've seen from him. Well, humor is also a bonding mechanism. And remember, human often right. depends on craft walls and things like that. It depends on finding somebody whose weakness is obvious to all of us so that we can all gather and feel cozy and chummy by laughing at him, whoever it is. The deprecating humor, for sure. Yeah. And and then there's the approach of coming onto the stage if you're a comedian and immediately picking five people in the audience and one by one humiliating them. And the audience gets a laugh out of it. Again, because you're picking out the, the weakest rat and getting the rest of us rats to get together and gang up on him. So that's why um, I was about to say Hitler. It's not Hitler. Um, it's Muhammad, who was just as bad. Um, but... It's why Muhammad had no tolerance for humor. Humor is ruled out of Islam. Um, why? Because Muhammad's father died before he was born. Then Muhammad's mother died by the time he was three. And he was essentially an orphan. And his uncle, who was his protector, was low down on the social totem pole in Mecca. So you can imagine what other kids um, did to him when he was a kid. So he sees humor as a weapon. Why? Because that's apparently how humor was used against him when he was a child. Uh, but he is the he was the wickedest, cruelest historical figure that I have ever spent four decades with. So you've not mentioned Genghis Khan, for example. Is that two? Is that number two then? Or I mean, Genghis Khan, from what I've heard, did the very similar type of conquest, just burn and rape. I mean, well, he said um, that his greatest pleasure was killing men and then wearing their women like shirts. Um, so, yeah, he loved to kill and he, he his lineage raised started the business of raising mountains of skulls outside of cities, something that the Muslims later adopted. In so it's like kind of a Muhammad is like a 2.0 version. Well, but Muhammad not, was not only wicked and loved killing. He loved it. He loved beheadings. He loved torturing people. There's this um, quote that I managed to snab in 2000 from the Internet, which then was a very fetal, you know, tiny little enterprise. But there was a, a pro-Al-Qaeda um, group online um, that called itself the Brothers of Azam. And they said, we know from the scriptures that Islam or that Muhammad ordered us 
said we would eradicate um, the unbelievers, but first we would torture them. Now the question before us is how shall they be tortured? And that comes from an incident um, in which Muhammad defeated a Jewish tribe. He was very big on beating the shit out of Jewish tribes, stealing all their goods and taking their women as sex slaves. He did that essentially four times. On one occasion, he let the people go away with everything they could carry on their camels. It was an ethnic cleansing. But the other cases were, I mean, in one case, he beheaded 700 men. Every man in a village old enough to have pubic hair. And then took the wives. He took the wife of the chief of that town who had been walked wailing and screaming past the corpses of the men that she knew, including her husband, and took her to Muhammad. And Muhammad wedded her that night. Now, what does that mean about her voluntary accession to having sex with Muhammad that night? No way. It was rape. And that's what Muhammad predicted in chapter 8. Of the Quran, women they take they take that the takes by the right hand, and right now you can see real Islam naked in um, Sudan. And in Sudan, there's remember the Janjaweed, the uh, camel riding uh, Arabs who would come from the north yeah. and would say yes. before they headed south to become parts of the Janjaweed, they would say, "I'm going south to make." 40 Muslims. Now, what did they mean by that? They meant, I am going south to kill the men and rape the women. Because every woman I rape, the child of that rape, is automatically a Muslim. And because I'm an Arab, that child is automatically an Arab. So I'm going south to rape 40 women. And recently, in the last two weeks, um, what the, the people that the um, these the army that that um, supported the Janjaweed is now one of the two factions fighting for control of Sudan. And it is continuing its pillaging and conquest um, in the south, and it is pillaging and conquering against the black people of the south. It's a racist thing. So, and, and Islam 10 likes to say we are not racist. Fuck that. This is thoroughly racist. And um, they, um, th- these proto-Janjui ran across a group of um, black women without men. And they said, okay, these um, are beautiful. We can sell them. Take them to the market where we sell them. Um part of the straight out of Muhammad's day. Um, And these are too ugly to sell in the market, so rape them. And one of these women was told, if you have a baby by me, um, your baby will be born an Arab. So don't keep your baby in your black village. Take your baby to the latest Arab, the, the nearest Arab village and let them raise him. So this is going on today, Mark. I mean, literally in the last 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the, I've not seen it really, but the slave trade, they have live slave uh, slave auctions in Libya going on. I mean, it is a crazy world in which we live right now. So these, so these are, these are Muslim and Arab civil rights. 
These are Muslim and Arab human rights. They have none. So the I guess the question then is, I'm assuming, let's make a very horrible assumption that anyone who's not a live and let liver would be the terrorist side. Right. right? Because they obviously want eradication. Let's just, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I ascribe to that. I'm just putting myself in the shoes of that thought at this right. moment. Okay. So let's just say that. So our, the, the current idea is these non-live and let livers are the ones that are generally the ones looking for the eradication. That would be the terrorist side. Right. How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? And how do you then, because I, as a human, it's hard for me to say eradicate. I'm not in the fight. So I really can't speak for or against either side because it's not a, I, I don't know that it's clear conflict that I don't know enough about. Right. But I, I find the human in me says I eradication of all seems tough. And with the idea that there are live and let livers, I would assume there's a good enough size of them at least to allow for the existence of the, of the people. But they don't, they don't speak up. They don't have right. a voice. And, so, and some, you know, the book, the Muhammad code, because how do we, how do we solve that? <laughs> so what do we, I mean, do we, do we, we, we systematically, I, I'm not saying I once again, ascribe that, but systematically remove the, the cancerous portions of it and then slowly ha give them a way to get a voice. Yes. And then, okay. So, um, First of all, I wondered why my stuff is read in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, in the United, uh, um, in in Dubai, um, and um, one of my biggest fans is a Muslim, um, and he's a Muslim atheist, which is very tricky, because in many countries you can be killed for being a Muslim atheist. It's against the law. Um, and, um, he set up a meeting for me. Well, first of all, he said, when I posed him this puzzle, why am I getting all these hits from the Muslim world? And he said, don't you understand? These are people we oppose and we don't have a voice. You act as a voice for us. So when the Mohammed code came out, first, I privately published it. And then it came out via Feral House um, 10 years later. Um, it never was accused of being Islamophobic. That's really weird. Um, because in my first book, they had, uh, Care had taken simple phrases from Muhammad that I had quoted in the book and said, these are a lie. Right. So, so, the chapter, so what was the shift? What have you found what the shift was? Well, apparently I'm accepted for speaking for some of these people. Because they don't have their own voice. And the same fan of mine said, your Pakistan needs your way of thinking. And he set up a phone call for me with three major figures in the Pakistani economy. One ran a $4 billion company. And again, that's when $4 billion was, was worth a lot more than today. Um, one ran a $750 million company with offices in 17 countries. Um, and the other had been head of the Pakistani Software Association. 
during the period when the Pakistani software industry had doubled in value. And before we could start the conversation, they said, we just want to apologize for something. We want to apologize for Dubai. We want to apologize for its materialism, its consumerism, and its its really flamboyant display. And something suddenly occurred to me. This has probably happened to you, where you didn't know you thought something until you were hit with the right question. And I said, never apologize for Dubai. Roughly 50% of, of the Arab world and the Muslim world um, does not identify with the violent side of Muhammad. It, they, you it, know what I, they side on? They side on the green and gold side. Let's right. not get ourselves. Do, the UAE is all about the money. Yes. They're, and, but they, nonetheless, they're about as secular as you can be other than gold and money being their goal. Exactly. God, right? like, and so, so I said, look, no one speaks up for you. The city of Dubai speaks up for you with its architecture. With its architecture, it says we are capable of competing in the modern secular world. We are part of the modern secular world without ever using a word. Because once you put it in words, remember, in Pakistan, first of all, the Pew survey in Pakistan shows that 50% of the population is on the peaceful side of things. 50% of the population is on the terrorist side of things. If that's true all across the Muslim world, that would be ghastly. That would mean nearly a billion Muslims are on the terrorist side of things. But let's not extrapolate. I would, I would find, yeah, and I would also find that number to be slightly, for the people who do, yeah, because the people who are afraid to speak their voice wouldn't exactly say they weren't on the side, you know? Right. So it's really hard. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, you can take a number and twist it a different way. It's not that it doesn't exist, but we look at it as a part of this part of the information, right? Well, once upon a time, roughly 10 years ago in Pakistan, there was a governor of a province who was wonderfully articulate and secular and pluralist. And there was a, uh, a Christian woman. There's a small Christian population in Pakistan, and they are the scapegoats there. Um, so there was a Christian woman who had been sent to jail for blasphemy against the prophet. Now, anything a Christian woman says when she opens her mouth is going to be blasphemy against the prophet. Nonetheless, and blasphemy is a death sentence. And very often in Pakistan, if the court doesn't impose a death sentence, the guards will do it themselves. Because that's being faithful, religious, and true to the prophet, to Islam. Um, that's being righteous. Um, and the governor, as an act of tolerance, went to visit her with his wife in the prison. And a few weeks later, one of his guards, using an assault rifle that squeezes out something like 20 bullets a, a second, um, turned on him and put 27 bullets in him. That guard, though he was sent to prison, was almost immediately elevated to a street hero in Pakistan. So where uh, does that show you the mass mood of Pakistan is? So, yeah. so that that's it. It's a very it's a much trickier world than we are being led to think, um, because we're not aware 
of this massive iceberg, um, the Empire of Islam, which still holds sway. There was a woman from Harvard, a historian from Harvard, who claimed to be the world's leading historian on imperialism. And she said, no empire in the history of the world has ever been able to hold the hearts and minds of the people it conquered. Well, has she ever looked at the empire of Islam? The people of Algeria on the furthest ranges of the Eastern Atlantic are still Muslim to this day. Um, in um, Nigeria, the Northern Islamic provinces are trying to expand their territory and take the whole thing. Um, they are still faithful, loyal, and true to Islam to this day. And over on the Pacific, uh, 8,000 miles away, Malaysia and Indonesia, two of the biggest Muslim countries in the world, are still faithful, loyal, and true to Islam. So is the empire of Islam still there in some form, just beneath the surface? You bet. And I find Indonesia an interesting location, if if that because I didn't, I was not aware about the religious beliefs of Islam of uh, Indonesia, but that's a it seems to be a pretty isn't that a large country? Two hundred eighty million, very people? large country, um, and it's the I and they seem to be extremely peaceful and very productive and and extremely decent well, people. From what I except um, if you go uh, north to the Philippines, um, Muslim. Um, terrorists have tried for decades to take over the country. Um, they, at this point, they have been limited to just one island, which they control. Mindanao, I believe it is. Um, so there, and the major terrorist groups have branches in Indonesia and Malaysia, and sometimes those branches control entire political parties. So it pays to look at this iceberg. It pays to look at this sleeping giant um, because it's not just China, the United States and Russia tagging along with China like a poodle at this point, but a rabid poodle. Um, it's and it's not just authoritarianism versus um, democracy. It's authoritarianism versus democracy versus Islam which is a very different kind of authoritarianism because it is the... Well, it's a theocracy, right? Let's let's go democracy versus right. theocracy in a... But in this, its, is a, this know, is a theocracy order. built for world conquest. In right. Well, that is a theocracy per from what your, what your findings have been. 629 AD, Muhammad sent letters. They're called the letters of the emperors. He sent six of these letters to the biggest emperors he was aware of in the world. And he said, I'm inviting you to Islam, but unfortunately, if you don't accept the invitation, um, I will be forced to impose Islam by other means. You mean like uh, knock on your door and show up at your house? Right, and, right. and nobody knew who this guy was. So Chosros, uh, the emperor of Persia, the, the the head of the right, Persian Persia. Empire turned right. to his counselors and he said, who is this guy? What people is he from? And his advisor said, it's a people of camels and goats in the middle of the desert. This is ridiculous. Uh, and they disregarded it. Um, that was a mistake. Um, meanwhile, Mohammed was digging a trench 
for an upcoming battle. And um, he was the first man into the trench with a pickaxe. And his pickaxe was striking sparks. And he said, that blow means we shall own everything there is to the West. God has opened the scroll of the earth to us and it shall be ours. That blow, and he took another swipe with the pickaxe, everything to the East shall be ours. In other words, he laid down a goal of word conquest. And in his second battle, he had come up with the indispensable tool for world conquest. Um, it looked like his, his troops took up a position. He was leading them. And he and his troops took up a position um, with two mountains behind them. And because there was a pass between the two mountains, so they wouldn't be taken from the rear, he put 50 archers in the pass. The battle went well for Muhammad, and the Meccans, his perpetual enemies, fled. Um, his men, his archers, saw, I mean, remember, booty, the loot, is a tremendously important part of Islam. So his men down on the battlefield were busy plucking the weapons and the clothing um, from the people, the, the slain Meccans. The archers back behind them saw that this was going on and realized if they didn't get to the battlefield fast, there will be no loot left for them. So they abandoned their position in the pass. And the Meccans came around the hill and through the pass and drove Muhammad's troops away. He was left almost totally abandoned on the battlefield. And wow. he came up with an idea, you know, one of his inspirations from Allah. And the idea was this. If you die killing unbelievers, you get an express ticket to paradise. And you get to live in God's own palace with 72 virgins. That's 72 virgins. And every time you have sex with them, their hymen will be replaced so that you can take them as virgins all over again. Um, it was a brilliant idea. The idea was he came up with it because he wanted to figure out a way to keep his men from abandoning the battlefield ever again. Where and did the 72 come from? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Because it is uh, a unique, like a specifically unique number. It's called Pussy in Paradise. Um, yeah. And, well, that's and, funny. I mean, he replaced basically uh, financial greed on earth with heavenly, you know, with your greed of heavenly riches, right? Yes, exactly. So, um, very interesting. So he was then able to. So, play. how did he get out of it? How did when he when he was abandoned? How did he get out of that one so he could decree um, that there was a man charging at him, um, who was obviously going to kill him. He was wearing he was overweight by this time. He was only in his forties, but he was overweight, and he was he was weighed down because he was wearing two coats of chainmail. And this guy came at him, and Muhammad was holding a lance, and Muhammad managed to get this guy in the neck. Um, and it was a wound that would kill him um, a few weeks later, but that took care of him. So he got with his bodyguards, um, he managed to get off the battlefield, but then wow. he needed this brilliant innovation of pussy in paradise. And here's right. how he hooked it all together. The Quran says, if you don't get off of your couch and go out 
and make war, jihad, um, at some point in your lifetime, killing the unbelievers, you cannot possibly get to paradise. And if you are out there fighting um, the non-believers and killing them, and you die in the course of that, it will be a gift, not a loss, because you will go straight to paradise. And otherwise, you would be uncertain for the rest of your life about whether you will be consigned to paradise or to hell. And hell is so bad that in hell, you will be roasted over a spit until your skin falls off. You will be screaming with pain every inch of the way. And then you will be provided with a new skin so you can feel that pain all over again. Mohammed had some pretty grim and sadistic visions of hell. Of course, so did uh, would la- the, the Christians would later have some pretty grim views of it, too. But and, and this was in the Dark Ages in Europe. This was in mm-hmm. uh, 629 A.D. So right. this was the formula for perpetual conquest. For taking over the entire world, the scroll of the earth has been unrolled to me. And thou shalt have all of it to the east and all of it to the west. All of it shall be yours. Um, so that's been the mandate of Islam ever since. World conquest. Battle with Israel, just a minor episode, except that the Jews are the ultimate enemies in Muhammad's view of the world. Yeah, I mean, and, that's certainly more than the river to the sea. Everything to the east and everything to the west, right? Yes, Yes, that's the goal. So when people talk about, well, we have too many Muslims in there in in Europe and France and England, and they're going to Muslimize the country, that is not paranoia. The people who paint that as paranoia know nothing about Islam. Ali Masrui, a, a Muslim demographer who worked in the was located in the United States did an article for a population journal where nobody would ever see it. And it said that Islam is based in part on procreational jihad, on out-procreating the enemy. That's every religion because that's why Catholics don't allow uh, Well, that's a good know, point. Contraception. Yeah. yeah. It, Judaism well, has, nothing whole point. To, has nothing of that. But, no, well, Judaism was, it's interesting because Judaism seems to be much more of a way of life than a specific religion. It seemed to be a way of navigating the, the difficulties of this world. That's part of it, but there also were the extreme religionists. Who, yes, who, there were, who, certainly. Who were the entire community until Napoleon came along and uh, liberated some of the Jews um, and since then, we've been able to be secular. And um, in Marx's case, his parents converted to um, to Christianity, because if you didn't, you couldn't get a decent position as a lawyer. And that's what his dad wanted to be. But you had secular people like the Marx family. Um, right. and after, and, but the Jew, the Jewish people never really proselytized like the like the Christians no, did. They never proselytized because it's a tribal religion. Right. It's a, that, it's a much place. different. It's kind of like a personal community thing. Right. Uh, you know, to, of a survival thing, much more than it is anything outside. Well, and there's a tip off to what you're saying in a, a simple little thing that nobody seems to notice. I told you how 
Islam is structured when it comes to procreation. If you knock up 20 women, those babies are automatically automatically Arabs and they're automatically Muslims. Um, in Judaism, your belonging to the group does not depend on your paternity, on who your father was. It depends on who your mother was. Now, what is that built for, in my humble opinion? Um, it is built for a group that is a scapegoat and whose women are periodically in pogroms raped. And it means if your mother was a Jew, no matter who the father was, you are Jewish. The opposite approach from Islam. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's a maternal versus paternal kind of approach. It's interesting. Right, exactly. So that's... Uh, well, well, we've been here for for a little while. I am so grateful for your time. We can talk for hours. You're welcome. This time is yours. Uh, I haven't spoken to you in the while. Is there anything else going on or is there anything else you wanted to to talk about tonight? No, we're th this is the key thing on my mind. And I'm trying to finish my eighth book. I'm in Excellent. the last. Yeah, you're in the midst of that. Is that correct? That's yeah, why we exactly. kind of had a tight time crunch here. Yeah. And that is the case of the sexual cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong. Um, and I'm very close to finishing it. But it may Excellent. take me another three to four weeks. We shall see. Um, no, that's not that. That's close. It's, it's close, but it's not close enough. I thought I would be finished by September 30th. Um, uh -huh. I'm a little over the past time. I'm running two months late at this point. It is a pleasure to see you. Um, as well. And that, that's an understatement. And thank you for letting me get all of this off my brain. Um, Absolutely. And so I'll, I'll see you the next time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you do have questions, you know, you you mentioned something with George Norrie about suicide. I you I'm happy to reach out. I've done episodes on suicide and some other things. So, all right. Well, you'll get a copy of that tonight. But I have Excellent. to go back to working on my book, or I'm I'm shafted. Okay. All right. Take care. Thank I you so much you for your time, Howard. Once again, the Muhammad Code and Lucifer Principle are those the two big books yes, that we're talking those about are the this two evening. That contain material. On, oh, and if you want to read about about Osama bin Laden before he ever pulled off 9/11, um, take a look at uh, my second book, Global Brain. Excellent. We'll All right. So, have sir. a great night. Thank you. Have a great night. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. I hate to leave you, but I really must say good night, sweetheart. Good night.